Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I am here on my own today because Ian Clary and I haven't been able to kind of work our schedules out for the past couple weeks. Today we're going to do a little bit of a catch-up. We're going to do uh, John Calvin's book two and chapters three to seven. In these chapters, there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, The main things seem to be uh, human nature, um, and then also how we're saved in Christ, the fall. There's various notes like that we'll look into. Um, with that said, I think I want to kind of open here by just looking at, because we're going through a lot of chapters, I'll kind of move, move through this fast. Plus, I'm on my own more accurately. Because I'm on my own, we'll move through fast. It's a little harder to do this without, without the conversational element. Um, but I kind of want to look at a few things um, about what John Calvin says about our ability to do good. And one of the really interesting things is when we think about total depravity, we often think about total depravity as the inability ever to do anything ever good. Well, ultimately that's true because we can't do things to perfectly glorify God with perfect intentions. That's right. Uh, But total depravity is more that every aspect of who you are as a human being has been affected by the fall, whether your mind or your will or your whatever else has been damaged, the complete package of who you are as a human being. And so there's a real sense in which there are some sort of like relative goods that you can do. Uh, And John Kelvin will build on that a little bit. No, it's not like a real true good that is fully after God and fully in obedience to him. But it's relative in the sense of um, it, there's, there's good kind of mixed in with the bad. So, for example, on page uh, of chapter or section three of chapter three, John Calvin says, uh, These examples accordingly seem to warn us against a judging man's nature wholly corrupted, because some men have, by its prompting, not only excelled in remarkable deeds, but conducted themselves most honorably throughout life. But here it ought to occur to us that amid this corruption of nature, there is some place for God's grace. Not such grace as to cleanse it, but to restrain it inwardly. He goes on to talk about common grace or restraining grace as something of like a bridle that allows us to do sort of like what I would say is relative good. No, it's not real good. No, it's not ultimate good. But it, it's this restraining grace that God shares to allow people to do things like govern well, to not murder, and so on. It's this ability for us not to fall into abject, abject and pure evil totally. So, for example, in section 4, he says, Nevertheless, the problem has been not quite yet been resolved. For either we must make Camulus equal to Catiline, or we shall have in Camulus an example proving that nature, if carefully cultivated, is not entirely devoid of goodness. Indeed, Calvin says, I admit that the endowments resplendent in Camulus were gifts of God and seem rightly commendable if judged in themselves. He'll go on to talk about, uh, these are just, I guess, two Roman figures from history that are kind of well-known. I guess, in the war of Catiline. What he's trying to get at is, yeah, we can see good in people, but when we do, this goodness doesn't come from their corrupt nature. Uh, This goodness is actually a gift from God. It is not a common gift of nature, he'll say, but special graces of God. And therefore, you can call someone well-born, he mentions uh, a little bit later on. Um, And then he talks in the same section... um, how about people who are like kings and governors? And he says this, For God, in providing for the human race, often endows with heroic nature those destined to command. 
Meaning uh, those uh, who in God's providence rule or lead armies, whatever it might be, have a real sense of, of heroism. But again, all of this is God's grace uh, that is mediated among people who are not regenerate. They're still, everyone's still bounded in sin. Um, nobody still wants to glorify God. And so there's a real sense in which uprightness is still absent in the most ultimate and total way. But in a kind of relative and specific sense, uh, we can say someone's a great governor. Someone's a great doctor. Uh, somebody is a great, you know, whatever it is, scientist of some sort, teacher of some sort. These are all people who are endowed with, with good gifts that we can recognize and say they are good. But when we do that, we don't actually attribute, according to Kelvin, these good things according to nature, but rather according to God working in and through fallen nature. Uh, and largely, this is at least connected to our uh, our will. I mean, we are really bound to sin. We can't really do anything else but sin, necessarily so. And yet, Calvin will make this sort of um, distinction between uh, necessity and uh, willing actions. So, um, necessity and compulsion, actually. So, um what he wants to communicate here is that we'll, we'll necessarily sin. It's going to happen because we have a bad nature. A bad tree produces bad fruit. And yet, we're still choosing to do these things. They're still willingly done. They're necessary due to who we are as a fallen person, with fallen natures. But we willingly choose to do them. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing because I can't remember the section offhand, but he makes this point that the same thing is true about God in the opposite direction. We say that God, by nature, is good. He can't do evil. It's not possible for God because he's good. Okay. But then, do we then say that when God does good, he doesn't do it by choice? It's not according to his will? No, of course it is. God is good by nature and can be nothing but good. It is impossible for God to be bad because that's not who he is. It's not his nature. Likewise, for us, we are bad. We have bad natures. And... It is impossible for us to do anything but bad. Our will is totally bound to our corrupt and fallen state that we're in. But we nevertheless freely choose to do these things in accordance with our nature. And therefore, he wants to kind of make this very specific uh, way of speaking of choice. So that we are morally culpable for our actions because we still choose willingly, despite the fact that it is necessarily done. Now, I'll let you figure that out to see if that seems uh, compelling to you. I think sometimes in the Reformed tradition, we we do have answers, but they're not always... There's a lot of mystery to it, is maybe the way I should have put it. It's it's not like, yeah, the distinction works. I, we, we can get it from Calvin. But is it necessarily the best distinction to make? Is there better ones out there? Does that really make sense when you kind of tease through all the pieces of logic? I'm not sure. I think the distinction is a valid one. It makes sense to me. Um, if I have, if God is good by nature and still makes choices, I don't say that he lacks the ability to be culpable for those choices. He is, but he's good and therefore he does good. Likewise, I'm culpable for my choices, despite the fact that I'm fallen. Well, I'm regenerated now, but I'm, I guess I was talking in the mode of an unregenerate human. Okay. So this is some of the things that he opens up with. And as we go through here, I want to kind of bring up the point that he has a very specific way of talking about free will. Now, I'm going to just double check that I have the right section here. 
Hmm. Okay, here it is. Yes, on page 316, chapter 4 and section 8. Now, I think I have talked about this before. I for sure did. But free will for Kelvin is something entirely specific. It's basically you have a well-ordered mind and will that is directed to glorify God in all that you do. I mean, that's a truly and free person. Uh, elsewise, you're in bondage to sin. We don't, when today we talk about free will, we don't think like that. When we talk about free will, we just mean uh, we, are, we are culpable for actions. Like we chose to do something that is between black or white. We picked one of them. Uh, you know, we wanted a chicken or a steak. We chose one of them. Uh, Calvin seems to be pretty much okay with that. Uh, he, he is talking about free will in a very specific way. And therefore, when he denies free will, he is simply denying that we have perfect natures that have a perfect will aligned with their mind, aligned with their emotions, aligned with the glory of God. Uh, he mentions it here relatively clearly in section 8 of chapter 4. He says, Anyhow, the ability of which we are speaking, we must consider within man and not measure it by outward success. In discussing free will, we are not asking whether a man in, uh, is permitted to carry out and complete, despite external hindrances, whatever he has decided to do. That's not the topic. So Calvin is not talking about whether someone can choose to go for a walk and do that. So here he says, but, this is what he's talking about, whether he has in any respect, whatever, both choice of judgment and inclination of will that are free. Well, they're not free because they're bound to sin. We are born into bad natures. And therefore, when he talks about free will, he is talking about it in a very specific way, not just that we can't make any standard choice for uh, having breakfast cereal or something like that. And I think that's important because, uh, you know, whenever we become Calvinists, it seems like we enter into a cage stage moment where we like to deny free will, but we use kind of the modern sense of free will when we deny it. That is, the inability to make any choice whatsoever. And we uh, basically become determinists. And determinism is not a good thing. Not, uh, that's basically Gnostic. It's fate. Uh, and one of the, uh, in the earliest church, one of the initial kind of heresies that came up, or at least something that eventually became a heresy, were the various kind of Gnostic groups. And one of the tenets of those groups was fatalism. Uh, basically a hardcore uh, uh, view that every choice is determined you're not free in any way, shape, or form. Uh, that's not what Calvin's getting at, at least here. He is getting at our will is damaged, our nature is corrupt, our mind and our emotions, all these faculties are not working together, and only when they are perfectly do we have true freedom. And uh, we don't have free will in this sense. He's not talking, as he notes here, uh, that someone can't choose to eat breakfast cereal and do that. That's an entirely kind of different topic. Uh, as we kind of progress through here, there's, there's one really cool phrase uh, that I, I guess is not entirely like the most relevant thing to pick up on or discuss. Well, maybe it is. I love what he says on page 322. This is book two. Chapter 5 and section 5. In the last paragraph at the top, he says this. If anyone wants a clearer answer, here it is. God works in his elect in two ways. Within, through his spirit. Without, through his word. By his spirit, illuminating their minds and forming their hearts to the love and cultivation of righteousness, he makes them a new creation. By his word, he arouses them to desire, to seek after, and to attain that same renewal. 
In short, spirit and word, spirit internally, word externally, both of those things work together to make us free indeed. To make us those who are uh, following God fully and clearly. I, I think it's a, kind of a blessed simplicity that Calvin has. He's able to say things sometimes so straightforwardly. And I think a lot of us in theological circles don't do that, uh, even today. So I kind of love that. So internally the spirit works, externally the word works. Together we become a whole and complete person. Um, I wanted to note something about Calvin's view of allegory. Um, page 339, chapter 5, section 19. He makes a point that allegories ought not to go beyond the limits set by the rule of Scripture, let alone suffice as a foundation for any doctrines. Um, here it's pretty interesting. I would say Calvin is almost friendly to allegory here, but in other places he's not. Uh, for Calvin, the allegories uh, that he sees and is responding to are those that are not, well, as what he says, uh, that are not really tied to the rule of Scripture. And I think, I mean, I have not read him to be an expert on this, but I think what he's getting at, if I can kind of infer here, is that any kind of reading of the Bible that's not tied to what it literally means and says is a problem because you can't really formulate doctrine or truth on that. Um, that's what he says, let alone suffice as the foundation for any doctrines. And I think he's right. Um, but in fact, it's interesting that two people that you might think that uh, are excessive in allegory, uh, Origin of Alexandria and Thomas Aquinas, both agree. And this is kind of one of those weird things that uh, we have in history where the word allegory has meant so many different things over so many different centuries that it's hard to know what someone's talking about when they use that word. So in sum, uh, allegory could just be a, a literary genre. So you think of, um, um, what is the book with uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress. That's an allegory by genre. Right? I mean, that's what it is. It's uh, an allegory of the Christian life. Um, allegory could also be uh, the mode of interpretation. It's something that you do, like you come to a literal text, and you say, well, it doesn't mean what it says, but it means something different. Um, allegory third could mean this. And this would be the most common, I think, in the early church. Uh, not so much the genre and not so much the, I don't care about the literal sense, I'll do something different. Allegory was something that was always contained in Scripture. But after Christ comes and unveils the meaning of reality in the cross, that there is an unveiling of the truth so that we no longer wear veils over our eyes when we read the Bible. We have unveiled eyes and the Spirit teaches us things that are spiritually discerned. And that means when we go back to the Old Testament practically, the scriptures, uh, we see them more directly, more about Jesus. When they're all, before they were in hints and shadows, but when the reality came, who is Christ, now those shadows have been illuminated so we can name them for what they are. So, I mean, we can think about the whole tabernacle and temple system in the Old Testament. Well, when Christ came, he said, the temple is my body. Well. Therefore, in the Old Testament now, that these uh, shadows, these signs, these figures, were always really about the, the true reality, which is Christ. And that, that ends up being more what people mean by allegory in the early church. It is something that is in Scripture. It's not external and enforced as if it was uh, nothing to do with Scripture or the subject matter of it. It's really only external, I suppose, in the sense of which um, uh, that Christ himself is not the Bible. He is 
the real existing person, but he interprets scripture and clarifies it by the Holy Spirit. Okay. I want to say all that because what Calvin's responding to is a kind of allegory that's probably, um, I think it was the second sense I gave, where there were a number of medieval readers of scripture who really built this kind of fourfold system of reading the Bible. And they seem to kind of lost this essential theological reasoning. So you have a literal sense, an allegorical sense, an anagogical sense, and um, uh, I guess a moral sense. Hmm. I think that might be the four. Um, someone will correct me in comments, I'm sure. And I'll maybe remember later, have to look it up. But all that to say is that allegory then was kind of this weird scientific thing. And it often didn't make sense of what scripture was saying. And it was, it, it got wild. That, that's what he's responding to. Something that in the 16th century was truly quite awful. Uh, but, but as we'll find out, all the reformed people and the Puritans afterwards are not against allegory. I mean, if you read any Puritan commentary on Song of Songs, I challenge you to find one that is not allegorical. And the reason why is because they thought that was the meaning of the book. It's about Christ and the church. It was always there. It truly is there. Same with the early church. Okay. I say all that because I think it's important when we have this sort of uh, debate on allegory that we get it right, that we have at least uh, an idea that allegory means different things in history and different times and different genres, and that if we're going to reject it, we're rejecting the same one that Calvin rejected, which I would too, to be honest. Okay, moving on. Um, Calvin, again, is really tied into pre and post fall. I find this statement interesting in chapter 6, section 1. Where he says, the natural order was that the frame of the universe should be the school in which we are to learn piety, and from it passed over to eternal life and perfect felicity. And what Calvin means here is, before the fall, creation itself was really meant to teach us to follow God. But because of the fall, it really can't do that anymore. And so we need to have kind of scripture to clarify things. And he's so Christ-centered that he'll make the statement on the same on the same page in the same section that surely after the fall of the first man no knowledge of god apart from the mediator has the has had power unto salvation and again he talks about how uh, i think oh maybe i got it wrong oh yeah he is we cannot by contemplating the universe infer that he is father god the father in other words, these two statements give you some limits on revelation. We, we really can't know about the Trinity from nature. And we also can't know God savingly in nature. There has to be special revelation for that. Um, and when he says, uh, after the fall, the first man no, has no knowledge of God apart from the mediator. Um, this, is, this is power unto salvation specifically. Uh, this is hugely Christ-centered. And I think it's important for us to realize, um, just kind of step back and think about this. It's maybe obvious if you're an evangelical, but for Calvin, and rightly so, salvation is totally in Christ alone. There is no other means by which we can know the Father savingly except through Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think that's something that's good for us to affirm and to remember, especially as evangelicals. As we kind of close down on the law here, there maybe a couple more notes we can say. I find it really interesting that although Calvin will have some issue with allegory as he did earlier, he has no problem saying that the Old Testament law is a figure and shadow, which again is basically what some people in the early church would have thought of when they thought of allegory. So he says in, in chapter 7, section 1, about the middle of the first paragraph on page 349, 
Uh, in short, the whole cultus of the law, taken literally and not as shadows and figures corresponding to the truth, will be utterly ridiculous. Therefore, with good reason, both in Stephen's speech and in the letter to the Hebrews, very careful consideration is given to that passage where God orders Moses to make everything pertaining to the tabernacle in accordance with the pattern shown to him on the mountains, Exodus 25.40. Uh, then he talks about types, um, and that the types in the law, the sacrifices, were actually meant to bring the, the worshippers' minds to a higher place, upwards to God. In short, um, Calvin says, if you just take it all literally, the cult in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, it doesn't make any sense. It's not about that. You really have to, it only makes sense when you see it as a shadow and a figure. And he uses the New Testament, Acts, and Hebrews to help make sense of that. And when he does, he shows that these things are actually more or less spiritual and meant to bring our minds higher. And this is going to make a lot of sense when he talks about the threefold purpose of the law, which is essentially to um, condemn us. Uh, secondly, to compel good or restrain evil. And then third... Um, for lack of a better term, it's a little bit hard for me to discern exactly how to say this, but the third use is essentially the spiritual use of the law, where we use it for our sanctification. Uh, we learn more thoroughly, this is um, page 360, uh, chapter 7, section 12. Uh, we learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and confirm them in the understanding of it. And then he talks about our exhortation and, and being led to obedience being aroused to obedience is the language he uses. And therefore, the law is actually good and prepares us for every good work. Uh, there's a spiritual purpose to all of this. In the Old Testament law, maybe it was less clear because it was in shadow and it was figurally told. But when Christ came, he made it clear that there are heavenly realities and spiritual realities to which these things point. Him, not least of which being one of them. So this is by way of summary, uh, chapters three through seven in book two. Next week, we just have chapter eight. I believe it. Yeah, it's on the Ten Commandments. I think it'll be an interesting one. Sometimes in our modern world, we sort of ignore the Ten Commandments. I don't know that we should. Uh, Calvin certainly does not. And the Reformed Catechisms will, all might be too strong, but many of them use the Ten Commandments in their sort of uh, catechism and in their confessional statements and things like that. So, We'll look forward to that next week. Well, thanks for being with me. I know it was a bit odd. It was a, just a solo go. Um, I find it a little bit easier to do this in a conversational way with my friend Ian Clary. But we'll hope to have him back for next week's podcast. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in.